0: And If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, and we'll be in chapter 9. As you can see from the plates in front of me, we're going to celebrate uh, this morning. Uh, the Lord's Supper ought to be one of the greatest celebrations in our lives. Now, it's been my experience through the years that oftentimes the Lord's Supper feels more like a funeral than a celebration, uh, but today we're going to celebrate. Uh, The grace and mercy of God. And I want to show you why it should be a celebration by turning to 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you were to ask me what are my favorite chapters in all the Bible, I would have to say Romans chapter 8, of course, and John chapter 15, but I, I think in the top three would be 2 Samuel chapter 9. This is an extraordinary chapter and some good news for us that will tell us why this is such a great celebration as we take the Lord's Supper today. So we're just gonna jump right in. Verse one says, David asked, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Now let's see if we can figure out the setting of this event. Jonathan was uh, the king's son, the previous king's son. And he had died in battle recently along with King Saul, his dad. And Jonathan was a man who was separated from David. David is, is the king today, or at least when this uh, passage was written, he was the one who had authority. And so David and Saul, the previous king, they, are, they were at odds for many, many years. Saul felt like David was trying to take his throne, that he was this bloodthirsty man. None of that was true, but that's what Saul thought. And so you've got Saul, the previous king. You've got his son, Jonathan, who has died, and you've got the present king, King David. Now, you need to understand something, I think, as the story begins about how a a king would operate in that day, in that culture. The king had absolute position. That meant that nobody ranked higher than the king. There was no legislature. There was no Supreme Court to whom you could appeal his decision. He had absolute position. In addition to his position, he had power, absolute power. He could raise up armies, he could uh, raise taxes, he could lower taxes, he could make a law one day and he could change it the next. He had absolute power. And along with that absolute power came something called an absolute prerogative. The king could decide if someone was to live or die. In fact, if the king said you were to die, that that ended all discussion, you were executed and you could appeal to no one. In in fact, in some cultures, when you approached the king's throne, he would give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down just sort of based on whatever kind of mood he was in that day. And if he gave you a thumbs up then you could come in and you could have audience with the king, but if he gave you a thumbs down, then not only were you not allowed to see the king, but you were executed (laughs) so that you could never come in and get the king in a foul mood. Again, he had this absolute prerogative of life and death. But along with that, came something called the royal purge. And you've got to understand that I think to understand this story. Typically when one king died, the next king would be his son or his grandson. And the throne stayed in the family. Does that make sense? And so it was just passed down from family member to family member. But occasionally, there would be a change of families, a change of dynasties. And so one king would die, and his family would not inherit the throne, but another family would step in. And that's what's happened, by the way, between Saul and David. Saul was the king, and so everybody would have assumed that Saul's son, Jonathan, would have been the next king. Uh, But he wasn't, and neither was his grandson. And so the, the line ended in Saul's family, and now a new dynasty, a new family, ascends to the throne. That's David's family. Now, ordinarily when that happened, the new king would hunt down everybody in the previous king's family and have them executed. Now, the reason you did that was obvious, right? You didn't want somebody a few years down the road uh, to, uh, to rise up and claim the throne. And so you just had all of those people killed. That was an accepted practice. And the king had the full authority and power to do that. And so here in verse one, we see these three characters. And I, I hope you know who they are. We've got David. Uh, we've got Saul and Jonathan. Both of those are dead. Saul was the previous king. Jonathan was his, was his son. Now look at verse two. It says, there was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba and they summoned him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. And so the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? Now, this would have been a very suspicious question because while David said he wanted to show kindness to someone in Saul's family, Ziba Most likely did not believe that. Uh, uh, David had been king for a little while, and he had taken care of really the international disputes that the country had, and he was beginning to settle down and focus on domestic issues. And so now most people thought it would be time for him to conduct the royal purge. And so he calls this uh, servant of Saul, and he says, is there anyone left in Saul's family that I can show kindness to? And the servant must have thought, I bet you'll show kindness. Uh, that's not your plan. I know what your plan is. But what, um, what Ziba didn't know is that there was this unique relationship between David and Jonathan. And while David and Jonathan's dad, Saul, were, were at odds with each other, in, in, in fact, Saul tried to kill David on 10 different occasions. So, so David and Saul were at odds with each other. David and Jonathan were the best of friends. In fact, they had made a commitment to each other that they would show kindness to each other throughout their lives. And even beyond that, they made a commitment that if one of them were to die, that the other one would show kindness to his family for as long as, as was possible. And so they had made this covenant. And and so David says, is there anyone left in Saul's family that I may show kindness to? Now, look at the rest of verse 3. It says, Ziba said to the king, there is still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. And so the the servant says, yes, there's there's one one man left, a young man. We'll, We'll see in the next few verses that his name is Mephibosheth. He said, there's one man, Mephibosheth, uh, he's lame in both feet. That was the servant's way of saying, you really don't have to worry about him. He's, he's not a threat to you at all. Uh, there's one man, Mephibosheth, lame in both feet. Now, l- let me tell you a little bit about Mephibosheth. Before we just get into the heart of the story, you need to know who the characters are. Mephibosheth, uh, he was the grandson of King Saul, the son of Jonathan, and he was lame in his feet. What had happened was, years earlier, when Mephibosheth was just five years old, uh, his uh, his dad Jonathan and his granddad Saul were out fighting a uh, battle, uh, somewhat against the enemies of Israel, but somewhat against uh, the the armies of David. And so they were fighting this battle, and both men are killed. And so word comes back to the palace that the king is dead, and the king's son Jonathan is dead. And in the palace, they begin to panic. They had heard for years from Saul the king they had heard from years of, of, about how bloodthirsty David was and how David wanted to come in and take over the throne and they were they were scared to death that David was going to show up and, and who knows what David might do when he gets here and so, so they're in this panic, and one of the nurses, one of the one of the child care workers uh, picks up little Mephibosheth, five years old and, and and grabs him up to to flee in case David comes and, and when he's running from the home, when he's running from the palace, uh, this nurse, she, she falls down and she crushes little Mephibosheth's feet. Now there was no hospital to go to. There was no urgent care. There there were no orthopedic surgeons. In those days, if your feet were crushed, then you just would never walk again, or you would never walk well again. There just wasn't any kind of medical care, and they were in a panic anyway. And so, so nothing was done, and Mephibosheth now, as a, as a grown man, he is lame in both of his feet. And so Ziba says, David, there's one man, his name is Mephibosheth, uh, and he's lame in both of his feet. Now, let's see what happens. Verse 4 says, the king asked him, where is he? And Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lo-debar, at the house of Mikar, son of Amiel. Now, Ziba says Mephibosheth is in Lo-debar, And we don't know exactly where Lo-debar was. Uh, some people have suggested that it was about 10 miles south of the Sea of Galilee, about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, th- th- there's been no archaeological uh excavation that has pinpointed the city of Lodabar. Uh, There's not enough about it in the ancient literature to really figure out exactly where it was. We have an idea, but we really don't know for sure geographically where the city of Lodabar was. But listen, we know where it was emotionally. We don't know where it was geographically, but we know something about what Lodebar stood for. You see, the the name Lodabar is is a Hebrew word which means pasture-less. It it refers to an area that is so desolate, that is so barren, that there's not even pasture there for animals to graze in. It, It is an absolutely desolate place. And so where was Mephibosheth? He was in Lodabar. He was in the middle of nowhere. He is in the place of desolation. And so while I said, like I said, we don't know where it was geographically, but we know something about where it was emotionally. Uh, Mephibosheth was in the place of unrealized hopes. I mean, you think about Mephibosheth, he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, right? He was going to be the next king. His granddaddy was the king of Israel. And then one day he thought his dad would be the king. And then shortly after that, he would be the king. When he was a little boy, they, they put a plastic crown on his head, and they pretended like he was the king. They put him on a little Fisher-Price throne, and they said, one day, you will be the king of Israel. And so life starts out pretty exciting for Mephibosheth. He's going to be the king. But now, he's living in Lodabar on the other side of the world, it seems, in a desolate place. His hopes have been dashed. His dreams have been Crushed. He is in the place of unrealized hopes. His uh, motto was, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. The refrain of his life was, what might have been. He was in a place of unrealized hopes and dreams. He was also, I believe, in a place of unending fear. Now Mephibosheth had to have known that one day David would realize that he was still alive and one day that David would know that, that the grandson of the previous king was still living and, and when that happened, according to custom, David would hunt him down and execute him. And so he he lived with this constant fear. Maybe that's why he was in Lodabar, hoping nobody would ever find him there. And and, and so every time he woke up, he knew that that might be the very last day that he would live. Every time he had a dinner meal, he knew that that might be the last meal he would ever enjoy. He lived in constant fear of what was going to happen. Lodabar was a place of unending fear. And I believe Lodabar was also the place of unrelenting bitterness. You just got to believe that Mephibosheth was a bitter man. There had been so many things that had happened. So much had gone wrong. Mephibosheth must have been a very bitter man. Maybe Mephibosheth was bitter at God. God, why would you let something like this happen? God, why couldn't you protect me? God, why did you let my grandfather die? Why did you let my father die? Why, why, why did you let this, this series of circumstances take me from the palace to the backside of the world? I'm crippled, I'm poor, I'm broke, I'm helpless, I'm weak, I'm scared to death. Maybe he was angry at God for letting all these things happen. Or maybe his bitterness wasn't so much at God as... Perhaps it was at David. Maybe he was bitter at David. David, that that bloodthirsty man, that 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 man who, who, who has uh, uh, who, who has caused my grandfather to die and to lose the throne. And and if it weren't for David, if it weren't for his his cruelty, if it weren't for his meanness, then then, then maybe I wouldn't be where I am where I am today. So maybe he was angry at David, or maybe he was maybe he was angry at that nurse. Maybe he was angry at her. She wouldn't have been so careless. If, she, if she, she would have just watched where she was running, Had she been a little bit more careful, I wouldn't be experiencing what I'm experiencing now. He, he lived in Lodabar, a place of unrelenting bitterness. Now listen, here's why I, I point that out as we go through this story, because I believe that some of you are living in Lodabar. See, see, I, think, I think some of you are, are living in a place where where you have unrealized hopes, where, where you thought certain things would happen and they haven't. You thought things would work out differently and they haven't. You, you, you had dreams for your marriage. You had dreams for your career and your life and your health and, and, and things just hadn't turned out like you always imagined that they would. Maybe you live with unending fear fear of what's going to happen how are you going to pay the bills at the end of the month what's what's the next report going to say from the doctor's office maybe you live with unending fear maybe you maybe you live with bitterness Maybe somebody has mistreated your marriage. Maybe somebody has taken advantage of you. Maybe somebody has been dishonest. They've lied. They've hurt you. Maybe it's been a boss or a spouse or a parent or a child or, or somebody close to you. And, and so you're, you're, you're bitter. Had, had they just not done what they did and said what she said? And so we need to, we need to pay close attention to this story, I think, because a, a, a lot of people every day live in Lodabar. Now let's continue because this is a good news story. Verse 5 says, so King David had brought him from the house of Mekar, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. And now it begins. Verse 6. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. He fell face down and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, I am your servant. And so God has brought him I'm sorry, David has brought him to the palace. And he, uh, uh, they probably had to pick him up. Uh, they probably had to help him get in. They put him in the floor just there in front of the throne. He's scared to death. And now what is David really going to do? Now look at verse 7. He says, don't be afraid, David said to him. Since I, attend, I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all of your grandfather, Saul's, fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. Now, everybody was shocked. The servants were shocked. They thought certainly David would have executed him, but Mephibosheth was shocked. Here he had come, just knowing that this was going to be the end. Mephibosheth... uh, he he really had no no argument against against David's decision if it would have been a decision to kill him he, he was the enemy he was the he was the grandson of the previous king he he had nothing to offer the king he couldn't pay him with any money he couldn't do any service any work he was he was poor and broke he was he was lame in both his feet and so here David says no i brought you here just just to bless you. And I'll give you the property that belonged to your your grandfather, Saul, which, by the way, was not just a small piece of property. It would have have made him perhaps the second richest man in the kingdom. But but then he says, uh, and you will always eat meals at my table. And then verse 8, Mephibosheth paid homage and said, what is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? I want you to listen to the words of Mephibosheth. He, he thought certainly he was going to die. He thought this was the end. There was no hope. And now he says, why have you taken notice of a dead dog like me? And then verse 9, the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, I have gotten, uh, given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons, your servants, are to work the ground for him. And you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Now, this is a picture of the goodness of God. It's a historical account, but it's a reminder of how good God has been to us. It's a, it's a reminder, it's a picture of the salvation that God offers to us. Because in this, in this story, David represents God. And in this story, Mephibosheth represents me and, and, and you. And, and, and we see here how God has bestowed upon us something wonderful. So so now, let me go back through just a little bit of the story and let me show you why we ought to celebrate when we take of the Lord's Supper and why we should celebrate when we think about uh, the salvation that God has given to us. Four quick reasons. Number one, we see here that salvation begins with God. Now let's think about this story. Salvation begins with God. Did it start with Mephibosheth reaching out to David to try to ask for his blessing, or did this start off with David looking for Mephibosheth? What what happened? Well, it started with with David. And, And see, our salvation always starts with God looking for us. That's worth celebrating. I'm not saved because I came to God and asked for his forgiveness. I am saved because first... God came to me. First, God showed his love to me. First, God showed me my sins and offered me forgiveness. Salvation begins with God. And if you think that your salvation started with you, if you think that your salvation started with you figuring out that there was a problem and reaching out to God and asking God to forgive you, then then you, you, you are underestimating two things. Number one, you're underestimating your own sinfulness. You're too sinful. I am too sinful to reach out to God. If it were up to me, I would never have reached out to God. There is so much rottenness in me and so much rottenness in you that it would never have dawned on us to reach out to God for forgiveness. If you think it started with you, you underestimate your own sinfulness. But number two, you underestimate the love of God. You see, God didn't sit in heaven with his arms folded and say, listen, if they want forgiveness, they'll come ask me for that. You, you, you ever had that attitude? Well, if that person wants my forgiveness, they'll, they can come ask for it. But see, God loved us so much more than that. He didn't wait for us to come ask for it. God sought us out. Just to give us His forgiveness. You see how wonderful this is. That salvation begins with God. Romans five eight says, "God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us." Now, the second thing we see here: not only does salvation begin with God, but number two, salvation is on behalf of Christ. Now, I want to read verse 1 again. It says, David asks, Is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Now, why did David do this um, amazing thing for Mephibosheth? Was it because there was something in Mephibosheth that was valuable? Was it something in Mephibosheth that, uh, that, that David was drawn to? Was there something Mephibosheth had to offer David? No. David did this for Jonathan's sake. See, David had this commitment to Jonathan. David, long before Mephibosheth was even born, had made a covenant with Jonathan. And so because David loved Jonathan, that's why he did this for Mephibosheth. Now why are we saved today? Is it because there's something good in us? Is there something worth saving in us? Is there something worthwhile about us? No, we are saved for Christ's sake. I'm not saved because there's something worth saving in me. I I, I am saved because of the merits of Jesus Christ. In fact, 1 John 2, 12 says, I'm writing to you little children since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. You and I are dead dogs before, before the Lord, before the throne, but we are saved on behalf of Christ. Now, the third thing very quickly we see from this is that salvation is available to everyone. If you notice back in verse three and verse four, it says the king asked, is there anyone left in Saul's family that I can show kindness to? He he didn't put any qualifications on that. He said, is there anyone left? Anyone? And then Ziba told him that there was still one left. And the king just simply said, where is he? Where is he? I'll take him. Where is he? That's the one I want. Now listen, what we learn from this is that salvation is available to anyone. It it, it doesn't matter. Salvation is available to you. It doesn't matter what your sin is. Now in this story, Mephibosheth's lameness, his his being crippled in his legs represents represents our sin. But you notice that when, when David said, is there anyone left that I can show kindness to? And Ziba said, well, there is one man, but he's lame David didn't say, well, exactly how lame is he? I mean, how bad is it? No, David didn't care. David didn't care how lame it was. And, 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 when, and when God saves us, he doesn't care how badly we have sinned. He didn't say, well, let me tell you, how, let me ask you, how, how badly have you sinned? He doesn't ask that. Notice also, uh, it doesn't matter what situation you're in. When Ziba told David, well, he's in Lodabar, David didn't say, Lodabar? Now, how did... But before we do something, we need to find out how did he end up in Lodabar? No, David didn't care about his situation. God didn't care about our situation. Anybody can be saved regardless of their situation. And when Ziba said that uh, Mephibosheth was a long ways off, David didn't say how long, how far. And God will save us regardless of how far away we are. You know, salvation is the great equalizer. Uh, We really hadn't even looked at the best verses in this chapter. Look down at verse 11. It says, Ziba said to the king, your servant will do all that my Lord commands. And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Now imagine this, David's sitting at the head of the table and uh, the dinner bell rings. And so the children of the king come in. In all their royalty, Amnon comes in, clever, witty, he's a natural leader. Uh, Joab, the mighty warrior, comes in and sits at the table. Absalom, wearing a crown, looking princely. Tamar, perhaps the most beautiful woman of that day. Solomon, the smartest man ever to live. And so they all come to the table and they all look so good. And then here comes Mephibosheth. And it takes him a long time to get there. I don't know if he's on crutches or a cane or somebody's carrying him or he's crawling, but it takes, it's hard for him to get there. He gets there, it's, uh, it's pitiful. Somebody probably has to pick him up and put him in the seat. He, he, he doesn't compare to Emnon or Joab or Solomon, doesn't compare at all until he gets in the seat and he, and, and he pulls the tablecloth over his uh, crippled legs. And you know what, at that point, he's just like everybody else. And you know, regardless of our sin, when we come before the Lord and he saves us and we come to eat at his table, we're all the same. We're children of the king. Now, let me tell you one last thing that we see here is that salvation is enduring. How long will Mephibosheth eat at David's table? Did anybody catch it? It's back in verse seven. He says that you will always eat at my table. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. How long will my salvation last? As long as God is on the throne. Let me show you one more verse. It's the last verse in the chapter, and I'm out of time, but uh, I've got to show you this verse. It's the best verse. It says, however, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. I wonder why he tells us there his feet had been injured. We we already knew that, right? He's, He's told us two or three times in this short story, there are no accidental words in scripture. I think it's a reminder at the end that even though he was at the table, he still had wounded feet. He still had lame feet. And you know, even though I am at the table of the king, you know, I still struggle with sin. You still struggle with sin, but we're still there because of the kindness, the mercy, and the grace of God. Now, let me lead us in a word of prayer. And then our men are going to come and we're going to prepare the Lord's Supper and we're going to celebrate this wonderful salvation that God has offered to us. And we're going to celebrate how good and how mighty is his grace and mercy. Let's pray. Father, help us right now to be reminded of how wonderful, how mighty you are. And help us be reminded of your goodness and your grace. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will come, men. And let's prepare the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask you as you receive the elements simply to hold on to them. And uh, once everybody has uh, the bread and the cup, uh, we will take of them together. While they are distributing the, the bread and the cup, I, I, I want to just ask two or three questions to help us reflect on what we've uh, learned from 2 Samuel chapter 9 this, uh, this morning. And so there are three questions that, uh, that came to my mind as I studied this uh, passage. Uh, the first question is uh, simply, what if the servants, the servants of the king, what if they had not gone to Lodabar? to retrieve Mephibosheth. And you know, that's a reminder that, uh, that all of us as, as Christians, it's, it's on us to go to Lodabar and, and bring Mephibosheth to, to the king. It's, it's up to us to go and to tell people about the salvation that's available, to tell them that the king wants to show them kindness on behalf of Christ. You know, if they would have never gone to Lodabar, then Mephibosheth would have never experienced the grace and the mercy of the king. If we don't go, if we don't invite, if we don't tell people about the grace and mercy that the king offers to them, then they too may never know that they could be feasting at the king's table. There's a second question I want us to reflect on. Not only what if the servants had not gone, but what if Mephibosheth had not come? And what if Mephibosheth had heard the invitation of the king, but he, he just was nervous or, or he just didn't have the courage or he thought he wasn't worthy. What if Mephibosheth would have stayed in Lodabar? Wait, if he'd have stayed in Lodabar, he would have never known God's grace and mercy. And I wonder how many people in our church today that are in the services today that you're just staying in Lodabar, that you've never responded to to this offer of grace and mercy listen right now you can respond right now you can say uh, Lord King of heaven and earth I come to you and accept your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy not because I'm worthy, not because there's something valuable in me but because of the merits of the life of Christ and his death on the cross. Are you still in Lodabar? Do you need to respond to the invitation of the king? There's a third question that uh, stuck out to me as I just meditated on this chapter this week. Not only what if the servants hadn't gone and what if Mephibosheth hadn't come But maybe the most important question would be, what if Mephibosheth hadn't stayed? So Mephibosheth comes and he's eating at the table of the king and it must have been just a wonderful thing. There was no longer any fear. There was no longer any bitterness. There was no longer any hunger or poverty. He was right where he needed to be. But what if Mephibosheth, after two or three weeks, would have caught the next ride back to Lodabar? What if Mephibosheth hadn't stayed? What would have happened if he had gone back to Lodabar? Well, I think several things would have happened. I I, I think he would have have experienced the bitterness once again. He would have experienced the the fear. He would have have lost the joy and the peace. Had he gone back to Lodabar, everything would have changed. But let me tell you something else that would have happened. had Mephibosheth gone back to Lodabar, I think it would have broken David's heart. I think every night when David sat at the table and looked across and saw the empty spot where Lodabar was to be sitting, I, I, I think it would have broken the king's heart. The king wanted Mephibosheth to be there. He, he wanted to show this kindness to Mephibosheth. It would have saddened the king. Well, listen, I think the third thing that would have happened, I, I think the king would have left Mephibosheth's dinner plate right where it was. I don't think he would have kicked him out. I don't think he would have told him he could never come back. I think he would have left the dinner plate on the table and he would have said every day, I hope today, Mephibosheth comes back home. Now here's why that question is important because I believe there are some people, genuine Christians, you're children of God, you've accepted Christ as your savior, but you've gone back to Mephibosheth. I'm I'm sorry, you've gone back to Lodabar. You've gone back to the world. You've gone back You've gone back. But listen, every day the Father longs for you to come home. Every day he looks at the place that's still set for you at his table. Every day he waits for you to return. And you and I can go back to the palace. You and I can go back because of the grace and the mercy of God. And my prayer is that this Lord's Supper celebration will be the Will be the key piece that will be the key moment, the decision in your life when you say, I'm going back home. And I'm going to feast at the table of the King. So I invite you, just before we take this Lord's Supper, would you make it, would you, would you have a conversation with the Lord? Would you say, I'm coming back home? I'm coming back home. It is said that on the night before he was betrayed at the conclusion of the feast of the Passover, which he and his disciples were celebrating together, that he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. And when he did that, he instituted this very peculiar, this very special celebration where we could eat of the bread and remember the body that has been sacrificed. And we could drink of the cup and we could remember the blood that has been shed for us. And we could celebrate that salvation is ours because of the goodness of our God and the merit of our Savior. In John chapter 6 verse 58, Jesus says, This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna that your ancestors ate and died, but he who eats of this bread shall live forever. In Hebrews 9.22, the Bible says, according to the law, almost all things, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. In First John 1 John 1.7, he says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Let us pray. Father, we celebrate that salvation is ours. We celebrate your goodness and your grace. We celebrate the love that sought us out and offered forgiveness to those who would respond to you. Father, thank you that we are eating at your table today and every day for all of eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen.